This season of the Sober Curious podcast is supported by Liars, an award-winning line of 13 impossibly crafted non-alcoholic spirits. I have another Liars recipe for you this week, which is a completely alcohol-free take on the Negroni. To make it, combine one ounce each of Liars Dry London Spirit, Liars Aperitif Rosso, and Liars Italian Orange. Simply pour over ice, stir briefly, and garnish with a slice of lime. I personally also love Liars Italian Orange with just a splash of tonic if you want an even simpler pre-dinner aperitif. Liars is available on Amazon, Bevmo, and at liars.com. That's L-Y-R-E-S dot com. And you can visit liars.com forward slash sober curious to sign up for a special 15% discount code. You can also follow along on Instagram and find more recipes at Liars Spirit Co. Welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast, a place for conversations about leading a more conscious, connected and present life. It's me, your host, Ruby Warrington, and my guest this week is Nina Renata Aron, author of the frankly addictive Good Morning Destroyer of Men's Souls, her memoir about love addiction and codependency. So codependency is a term that's got a lot of airplay in recent years, and what you might not know is that it was originally coined to describe the partners of active alcoholics. The thinking being back then that these people, usually women, were literally dependent on their alcoholic husbands for their livelihoods and were therefore forced to endure the fallout from their addictions, be it violence and emotional abuse or financial issues. Nina's book shows how this dynamic has both endured and evolved over the decades and how it showed up in her own life. And for anybody who's been in a close relationship with somebody engaged in substance abuse will very much see themselves in her story, a story which we don't hear often enough. As she even writes, I came to resent that there were so many books and films for them, addicts, and none for us, codependents. What about the women who lived with alcoholics? who cooked and cleaned for alcoholics, raised their children? What about the mothers who had watched their babies grow possessed by drugs, as my mother had? Were they too tired to write anything down? I, for one, am very happy that this book got written. It's such a great read. This is the talented, smart, and brilliant Nina Renata Aron. Nina, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. I just had a total little fangirl moment where I was like, your book, I'm obsessed. And really, truly, to everybody listening, um, please read this book. It's interesting, like summer is kind of typically in publishing, like beach reads and vacation reads. And as much as we're having a very different kind of a summer this year, I think that your book is exactly that sort of transportive, beautifully written, um, evocative storytelling that's just I just loved it so thank you for writing your book thank you so much that is beautiful to hear I do think it's um juicy enough to maybe transport readers away from their everyday reality (laughs) definitely but it's just your descriptions and your storytelling and your scene setting is so potent I just yeah, if you can't, if everyone can't tell, I'm kind of obsessed. <laughs> mm, thank you so much, Ruby. It also does this rare thing, um, which one of the reasons I don't read that much nonfiction, really, because I find it to be quite dry, even though I want to learn things. But your book taught me so much as well as that. So it does that rare thing, which is the storytelling piece with the kind of the discovery piece. I learned so much about um, the 
the other kind of like the ripple effect of addiction and had the effect and impact that it has on families, partners, mm-hmm. all of all of our relationships, you know, which is something I've felt and seen, but not having experienced Al-Anon, for example, myself, mm-hmm. and not really, there are definitely like addiction, kind of borderline addiction issues in my family, but not to the extent that you've experienced, for example. So it taught me a lot about that. And it taught me so much about myself. Oh my God. So wow. much of myself I saw in your story. And it's, and it's testament, I think, to the fact that this this subject of codependency, which is the sort of through line of everything, it's so hidden and it's so, because I think it's so normalized. It's it's this sort of blind spot that I think a lot of us have um, around our relationships. So I was constantly having like a, oh, I see myself here. Wow, I do that. Oh. Yeah, it's been really interesting for me because a lot of people in my life who have read the book who really don't have any firsthand experience with addiction, certainly not the kind of hardcore drug addiction that I'm talking about in the book, um, have, especially women, like I think that this is rather baked into sort of traditionally gendered relationships. And so many women have related to so many parts of the book that, um, and they seem surprised by that too. And surprised that, you know, I mean, I think codependency is a particular diagnosis or set of behaviors or something, but it really is also sort of like a guiding philosophy for how women have been socialized to care for others. So it does feel sort of broadly relevant. It has to me for a while. So it's been very gratifying to get to lay it out for readers and show people that this might actually be more relevant to their everyday lives than they would have thought you know absolutely and that your point about it being very gendered I mean it really shows actually how women have been dependent on partners and a family structure for so long and perhaps we're you know the first or maybe second generation where that's not true historically which is kind of mind-blowing because I've always thought of myself as so independent and so (laughs) autonomous and so in in, you know in charge of my life and I'm just so it makes me so grateful for the incredible work that has been done by previous generations of women actually who you reference in the book also absolutely yeah I felt that doing the historical research to write the book I felt just immense gratitude for having more freedom to, to determine my life, which is why it was sort of paradoxical or ironic, I guess I should say, that I ended up playing out of a relationship of extreme dependency. And even though, you know, eventually the light bulb went on and I thought, I, I have the freedom to unchoose this, you know, and to really determine the course of my life to a greater extent than I was. Mm. So, so codependency is a term, it has been sort of bubbling up into the, the, the mainstream consciousness probably for the past couple of years. I've just mm-hmm. seen it more and more spoken about in the self-help space, for example. And I wonder if you could just give your definition of codependency, or at least the definition of codependency that kind of makes the most sense to you consistently. Mm-hmm. Um it's interesting. I have read so many various descriptions of codependency, and I definitely don't think it could be collapsed into a line, for example. But um, but I think that it is um, it's what happens when we are in a relationship with somebody whose behavior is um, unhealthy for us or affects us negatively in any way, and that doesn't have to be through overuse of a substance. 
um, but it often is. And we sort of lose the contours of our self in, um, in trying to not only fix or help that person, which I think is one way that we typically think of codependent relationships, but also much more generally by trying to sort of corral, manage, manipulate, and control outcomes in, you know, in that relationship and in our households. And that kind of very, that may be overly abstract, but I think it sort of shows how applicable it is across all of these kinds of relationships in our lives. Once I was really sort of attuned to codependent behaviors, I saw them show up so much in my work life. And that was really kind of shocking for me. I would be like working in an office and have all of these kind of like simmering resentments about various coworkers or things I'd been asked to do that I took on too much. You know, it's, um, it's related to a kind of um, martyrdom or a sense of our own victimhood. We feel um, obligated to do the work of controlling other people. And we feel victimized by that and exhausted by it, but it doesn't feel quite like a choice. It feels like just how it's, how it has to be. And so we end up sort of sick, not taking care of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And losing ourselves, which is yes. that a theme that sort of comes through often in the book. There's something in there as well that came up for me around needing to be needed. And actually a sense of self-esteem and self-worth that comes out of being needed. So the needier the person we attach ourselves to, (laughs) the more they are going to need us. And so the more we are, our own esteem and worth is bolstered and the more we, the more right we even have to be here in the world. Yes, exactly. And that we say that if he needs me, he won't leave me. That's like a, you know, in Al-Anon. And I think um, that to me was part of what I sort of wanted to illuminate in tracing this historical arc in the book was precisely that, that it actually makes so much sense if you contextualize it historically, that this sort of set of behaviors would evolve out of traditional gender relations because women literally did need to be needed in order to be provided for. It's like, if you wanted to have a roof over your head, you had to be in relation to a man, a father or a brother or a husband, who did need you to perform certain kinds of labor. And um, it was in fact really dangerous not to be needed. I think it's, uh, I think it's, it was very interesting for me to sort of contextualize some of that and, and better understand that this wasn't just my individual pathology, like, but that these things had sort of, that I could trace the historical lines. Really interesting. Mm, It really, really is. And it makes sense actually when we spell it out that way as to why it's coming up more, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's just show, it shows that we're, it's coming up to be addressed, to be looked Mm -hmm. at, to be questioned, Mm -hmm. to be challenged. Yes, exactly. But it does seem to me that it often, um, addiction is often a sort of parallel intertwined sort of narrative alongside with codependency. Do you think that is, is it always the case or is it just very commonly the case? I think it's commonly the case because it was, they were sort of defined in tandem. And I think it's something that we don't often talk about or that many people don't know about the way that alcoholism was originally defined by the medical establishment. It was as this sort of um, dual disorder. It was as part of a sort of dyad. There was the alcoholic and the co-alcoholic. And that was traditionally a heterosexual married couple who were in this sort of twisted relationship and the co-alcoholic, which is now called the codependent. I mean, I think I say so in the book, but when I read that co-alcoholic, that it was like 
that much um, a part of the early understanding of alcoholism. That was really fascinating to me. So the idea is like, you know, both people suffer from the disease of alcoholism. For one person, it expresses itself through out of control drinking. For the other person, it expresses itself in all of these disordered behaviors. And that was really, um, that was kind of groundbreaking for me when I first heard it. And um, I think that as codependency became sort of better understood and better defined, um, people started realizing that they had these issues in their relationships in, in all kinds of contexts and not only in relation to alcoholics or addicts. And so groups like CODA, for example, which is Codependence Anonymous, you know, membership in that group does not require that you have a qualifier who is an alcoholic or an addict. It's just that you self-identify as a codependent. And I think that's incredibly useful, but I do think that though I do think that codependency sort of flares in its most extreme way when people are dealing with the disease of addiction, which is just so bewildering and baffling and painful. And so widespread. So much and more wide, so, so much more widespread than you know, with from within the rooms of AA or even within people who would identify as alcoholics. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So is this the same as enabling? That's another term that people might be familiar with. And can you maybe just describe some of those sorts of behaviors, particularly maybe the sneakier ones that might not Mm -hmm. seem like they're the, like it's obvious that you're enabling someone or that you're kind of in this unhealthy, toxic dynamic? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the sort of shadow sides of codependency is it's not just that we, um, become sort of obsessed with helping or fixing someone or controlling someone, but that, in relation to that other person, we come to see ourselves, it becomes a way of sort of avoiding our own stuff. And, um, and in my experience, I felt, a, a, which I tried to be really frank about in the book, a really sort of righteous sense of smugness and superiority, because I was sort of always standing next to someone whose life was like a trash fire. And I was by comparison, although my life was not always that together, like I was always able to sort of perform that mental trick where I'm like, wow, you are really messed up and I am basically fine. And um, so there are all those kind of avoidant things that take root, I think. But but also um, it really, um, in some ways, is kind of an outgrowth and compounds low self-esteem. I mean, I think about the fact that the work I've had to do in recovery from codependency has involved really thinking about the fact that I, I think I didn't believe that someone could love me unless I was performing these sort of everyday tasks for them. I, I think I didn't have the self-worth at the, at the root of it to really think it was kind of like, if I'm not paying someone's phone bill, like, would they really still want to live with me? You know, which is really sort of tragic. I mean, it's shameful to admit that, but it's true that I think, um, I think low self-esteem is at the root of it and staying in a relationship like that, where somebody does need you in those particular ways is kind of keeps you feeling like your function is sort of like administrative, you know? 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which there's, it's kind of in, and in that same way, it's a very set path. It's like, these are my tasks for today. Here's my to-do list. It's to make sure this person's okay. It's exactly. not, here's this book I want to write, or like, here's this dream I want to pursue, or here's this trip world, like worldwide trip I want to go, or whatever it is, you know, it keeps you, it, it permits you to live a very small and, and sort of safe life as well, I suppose. Exactly. I think so. Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it, yes, things I think remain very circumscribed. And I think you're also doing um, a lot of sort of PR work for, I mean, you're also part of what you're managing is like an addict's reputation or their image. And you're in the case of my ex-boyfriend, it was like, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to sort of manage his, the reception of him in my family or among my friends, either keeping him away from them, trying to explain away certain behaviors, explaining why he was never with me at a wedding or at a, you know, and, and evolving a whole sort of twisted philosophy of our love or our relationship in order to sort of make sense of that to myself and to other people. And you end up sort of, I think, creating a kind of alternate reality to survive that, you know? Mm, mm. you're in this sort of fantasy which then it makes I mean just reading the book which centralizes around your relationship with Kay mm-hmm. um it seems like he's a drug it seems like you're addicted to Kay yeah I mean is this the same as love addiction that's another term that we hear we hear and but even his just his whole persona and the way that he is and the way that you feel when you're with him is like this alternate reality that you can escape to in the same way that you would when taking a, a narcotic substance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. It's funny. I think about, um, one of the best definitions of alcoholism I have ever heard was when somebody said, it's really not about how much you drink. It's really just that when you drink, you have no idea what's going to happen. Maybe you'll have two and leave the bar and go home for the night. Maybe you'll wake up in a motel room in another state. Like you just don't know. It's like not in your control. And I really, the the sort of paradigm of love addiction is very compelling to me because I do really, I did really feel that way in the relationship. It was like when he was around, I just couldn't say what was going to happen, whether we were going to get into a violent argument, have the most romantic weekend in the world, you know, have a very banal dinner at home or stay out all night. It's just, it was that kind of feeling like, and I think that that unpredictability itself is an intoxicant. And yeah, but I do think that, yeah, I think, I think love addiction, I have gone to a few um, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous meetings and I find that, I mean, I think that's like another very, very useful framing. I think because I had spent a lot of time in Al-Anon and it was sort of more familiar to me, Al-Anon has been kind of more my chosen program, but I definitely think those tools are very useful. And I do, you know, I mean, I must be a love addict <laughs> it does that doesn't really seem up for debate <laughs> recovering love addict. recovering love addict yes. but it makes me think as well I've definitely heard some people describe their dysfunctional relationship with a substance most often alcohol because it's the most the one that people talk about the most um as like being in a dysfunctional relationship with another human like the way mm-hmm. that it it makes all these promises and then constantly goes back on those promises, but you still keep going back for more anyway. And just yes. that whole kind of exactly. you know, back and forth of mistrust, abuse of trust, um, love bombing. 
etc yeah it's, it's exactly very similar yes <laughs> so outside of um because you talk a lot about your family and I'll, I want to definitely talk about family dynamics as well but outside of non-familial and romantic outside of family relationships and romantic relationships how else can this show up you already mentioned work I feel like you know someone has a, a, a emotionally abusive boss they might recognize a similar pattern there Certainly. you know I think that social media certainly seems to be like crack for codependency (laughs) (laughs) I notice you don't have a big social media following and I'm also always always kind of slightly in awe of people who've got book deals who don't have a big huge social media following I'm like it's possible (laughs) but yeah I'm just wondering like where else we see this kind of show up yeah I mean to me a big part of my recovery journey has been um looking at the ways that my codependency shows up in my relationships with friends and in my community, you know, I have kids and I'm part of a big community of parents and, um, and I have a lot of friends. And I think that, um, like most codependents and, and people pleasers or enablers, I spent almost my entire life overbooked in a kind of cartoonish way. Like I was the kind of person who, I just absolutely could not bring myself to say no, both because of the discomfort of saying no in the present moment to somebody's face or something, or just because, you know, I mean, it's funny to hear FOMO articulated as a thing. I think I've had a version of that my whole life, but I also have just felt sort of obligated and sort of felt part of this, just sort of ensnared in relationships. And I think that's partly because I got very used to feeling like I had to do things and then resenting that I had to do them. And I was kind of hooked on the resentment itself. And so it was very hard for me to know what I really wanted. And that's another thing I really try to drive home in the book. that That is a kind of secret codependent behavior or habit that I think a lot of people don't think of or know about, which is just that we come to not be able to get in touch with like a gut feeling or, or a gut instinct, certainly not one that's in our best interest. And so people who deal with addicts and alcoholics in the long term, I think, don't really know how they feel about anything. They're always responding to putting out fires and stuff like that. And so that showed up so much in my social life and always has where somebody would invite me to do something. And I would like, do what I felt I was supposed to, which was like sort of pause and check in with myself and think, do I want to do that? And I never knew the answer. I I had no idea what I actually wanted to do. And I had never really consulted with myself. And it's taken me honestly, like a few years to be able to hear a little voice in there that actually has preferences about where she wants to be and how she wants to spend her time and to be able to listen to that and to be able to act on that. So I think my social life, which, you know, I think I just always, I say I always over-promised and under-delivered. I was just spread much too thin. And I, so I just did a lot of things like quite half-assedly and, but always felt like I was like giving, giving all the time, you know, and that, that is the codependent predicament. So I definitely think in, in all kinds of, like at every tier of social life, this has shown up from you know, the PTA to friendships that are, you know, acquaintanceships. And it's wild to me how sort of 
how much I will go through. Like someone could invite me to a barbecue and it would have taken like three days of hand wringing for me to figure out what to do if I didn't want to go. And then I would go anyway and then I would be annoyed. You know, it's like a whole thing. And that is very shameful. And so I think a lot of what we end up talking about at Al-Anon and as, you know, I sponsor women in Al-Anon and they have such profound shame as I did saying things like that. It sounds ridiculous and only someone who understands where that comes from and what that feels like can you know really support you through that because my friends will be like well, I don't know do you want to go I'm like I don't know, you know? <laughs> I need my Al-Anon girlfriends for those decisions thanks thanks for explaining all of that and it's I love the way you articulate this in the book there's one line I can't remember. I, I was looking through it, looking at my notes before we got on the call. And so I was looking at that line specifically and it was something about, you know, I've, I got so used to being empathetic to other people's needs that I didn't even, I couldn't even connect. I didn't even know what my needs were. Mm-hmm. And that was definitely mm-hmm. something that I could really relate to. And even before we got on the recording, we were talking about how this, you know, I was reading it in the first two months of lockdown for the COVID-19 lockdown and realizing how peaceful I felt and my periods have regulated for like the first time in <sighs> years. And I just feel so relaxed and I'm sleeping well and I feel like I'm on top of work. And I'm like, it's because I have no social obligations, which sounds so selfish mm-hmm. and greedy and so kind of insular and also dysfunctional because like aren't we supposed to want connection and supposed to want to be social and I'm like I feel so relaxed when I can just be in my space and I feel like I'm kind of detoxing actually from what you're talking about and that maybe coming out of this enforced kind of period of like no social obligations I'll actually be able to be more connected to like because finally so three months in I'm like oh I would like to see this person yeah I do miss them and I'd really like a conversation with them and I'm kind of connecting to like that actual urge to connect exactly and surely there are some things that you're not missing I've been really I have definitely I feel like I'm on like the people pleasers dream vacation because there are so many things that can't happen right now and I have had a very similar experience of just feeling and it felt really radical and kind of exciting at first because I thought the people I was connecting with, and I think this is true for a lot of us, like I have stayed in even closer touch with my closest friends. And, you know, my, my closest girlfriends, we've been having now a Zoom call every week. And we're, we live in four different cities all over the world. We're like, why have we not been doing this for the past 15 years, you know? So it has, there's something really radical about this experience of really only doing what we want and life being sort of pared down to, that's something that is like that's that is like an accelerated concentrated version of the work I've been trying to do in codependency and now it feels like in recovery it feels like it's been sort of just gifted to me and I'm like oh this is what it would feel like yeah, right. and it's it's kind of it's been really wonderful so I I also hope that as things open up maybe um there are certain obligations that we just don't have anymore we don't feel bound to anymore that would be amazing yeah that we just I think everybody would be happier I think so as well I think everyone would be much more relaxed I actually wrote a whole book proposal last year when I was in the grips of major burnout of having like three book projects come out really quickly wow. and it was just so overwhelming um because that again like 
yes, I'll do that interview. Yes, I'll come to this thing. Yes, I'll, mm-hmm. oh God. <laughs> yes, I'll post three times on Instagram every day. Um, <laughs> but I wrote a book proposal and the title was Enough! Exclamation point. And it really <laughs> was like, can we all just like, can we not all just see that we're just overdoing in every area of life? And so yes. much of that I think is about people pleasing and validation seeking and all of the things that you talk about in your book. Yes, and I think that, you know, because my training is sort of as an academic, I really am, I really value the time and space and quiet to think deeply. And and because so much of my recovery journey has involved like learning to sit still and not act and meditate. And I, I part of what frustrates me so much about the kind of pace of our culture right now and things like the obligation to post on social media all the time it's just there's it just doesn't leave enough time to drill down to really really think about anything or to really read deeply or to you know it's just everything feels like a, everyone's just sort of snacking all the time you know and I and so I am really determined you know just sort of like for my intellectual life to not be to not be doing that, to not be spread so thin, because in being spread so thin, it's, you know, I don't get to take care of myself. Of course, that's also important. But, but it's also just like, I don't get to really, really think and being able to write this book was, you know, I mean, just incredible. I just had so much time to process and think through and read I mean I read just I just read so much because I felt entitled to it it was so great that's what I've always like the writing part in in interest similarly like the writing part of doing a book is that permission slip to exactly I always have an autoresponder on my email not responding I'm writing it's kind of like "Ah." that's awesome I'm doing I am doing that for my next book do it yeah I will I'm pausing this episode to tell you about Monument, which is a cool new online platform offering support for anybody who's looking to change their relationship with alcohol. Monument community membership is free and includes access to an anonymous forum, therapist-moderated support groups on topics sourced from their members, and other expert resources, all available anytime, anywhere. They also offer paid plans for affordable medical care, which includes sessions with licensed therapists who specialize in helping people change their drinking and optional medication to help you meet your unique goals for sobriety or moderation. Paid plans are currently available in select U.S. states with coverage expanding fast. Visit Join Monument to learn more about pricing for personalized treatment options and follow at Join Monument on Instagram for the latest updates. Now back to Nina Renata Aron. You, you, you mentioned, I actually made a note of this. Um, it's one of the Al-Anon catchphrases and it just made me laugh so much. Don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> I love it. Don't just I do something, that. sit there because don't just react. Yes. How about you sit and like find out how you're going to respond, you know? Yes. Um, but this did make me think, and it's something I mentioned again before we started recording. A lot of people who are sober curious, who are finding my work, as they begin to remove alcohol and get more clarity in general about their own lives may notice that other family members, partners, children have what maybe appear now as substance abuse issues. And they're very concerned. Like, how can I actually speak to someone about this? How can I help them? Mm -hmm. 
And I wonder what your thoughts are on, yeah, because, you know, you you grew up and, and to sort of see a bit into the family piece, you grew up, your sister was an addict um, and this is very present in your home. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I'm, and, and then, you know, you've had this long relationship <clears throat> with Kay, who's a heroin addict, among other things. And yeah, I'm just wondering if what, what advice you can offer to people on that tip. Yeah, I think um, I have thought a lot about this because I have really wanted to be helpful to the people in my life suffering with addiction. And, and over the course of many years in my relationship with my sister, who I'm so grateful to say survived and is thriving and is healthy and fabulous, you know, we're incredibly close. So we have talked a lot about the ways that some of our quote unquote helping efforts were actually really harmful, really shaming, really, um, you know, ended up making her feel further cast out from the family and um, stigmatized in certain ways. And also just kind of under surveillance. And, you know, I think that we really struggle to see addicts full humanity and to sort of see this as as a disease that people are not at fault for having and it is really that's a really hard thing to do because it is it's not cancer it is a disease that sort of mingles with free will and decision making and bad decision making and stealing and you know i mean it's incredibly complicated so i would never say that it's um simple to see it the same way we would see like a you know, cardiac disease or something. But I do think it's been really, um, really useful to me to listen to the people in my life who actually struggle most with this and not just imagine that I might know better how they should live their lives. Um, That took a while. (laughs) And I I think I built that skill over many years. But um, I also, I do believe that people who are sort of living alongside addiction can be helpful. I'm not, I, I don't really subscribe to the idea as I think some people in Al-Anon do that it has nothing to do with you. There's absolutely nothing you can do. All you can do is sort of detach with love. And I talk about this in the book, but that was really the prevailing wisdom in Al-Anon when my family first sort of accessed that the program 25 years ago. And, um, And my Jewish mother just was not having it. She was just like not, I think constitutionally was not capable of anything approximating tough love. And so we were sort of on a journey to figure out like, you know, it was not going to happen that we were going to like withdraw our love and support. So it was like, how can we give it in a way that is humane and and helpful and supportive? Um, And so I do believe that we should be present and we should try to help until it becomes clear that, you know, that dynamic is really harming us. You know, I think it's possible to be loving to people who are struggling with substance abuse dependencies and to be, and to listen and to treat them as human beings and to express our hope that they treat their problems. Um, But not to, force or complain or bribe as I did so many times in my relationship with Kay or, um, you know, engage in kind of 
manipulation. There are so many things that I now think back on and I think it was really a for, it was really delusional and and an expression of my own disorder that I would say things like if you stay sober for 90 days we could take a trip to you know I'm like that's just truly crazy thinking <laughs> and um but I am a believer that you know I don't think at least in my family's experience I think my sister often says it was the abiding love and support of the family that did keep her alive and that the thinking that she needed a stint in jail or like she, that she needed to sort of, you know, experience dire consequences, more dire than the ones that addicts do anyway, in order to like snap out of it. I think I do for me personally, that seems like misguided thinking. I just think that in Al-Anon, I encourage the people who I sponsor to put themselves first and to take really good care of themselves. And I think that healthy relationships spring from that, from loving ourselves and caring for ourselves. And it feels at first selfish. And, but I do think that if we get in the habit of taking care of ourselves, it sort of solves for a lot of the craziness in our relationships when we are really looking out for ourselves. There's a lot of craziness that just can't go down when we, have that sort of stronger sense of ourselves mm, that's so true and it also it's making me think about how um I've seen this dynamic where somebody maybe gets sober and they're feeling great about their lives and then they have someone who like refuses to go there with them and yes. it becomes kind of like rather than I see this person as suffering I have empathy for their experience I have empathy for their pain how can I genuinely help them it becomes more about like why can't they? Why can't they subscribe to my way of yeah, exactly. getting better? Why can't they see that I have seen the light and like <laughs> want to do like that kind of attitude? You know? Yes, definitely. I think people may be familiar with. In fact, someone even put this on social media, and I was like, "Good for you for being really honest." And she's like, "One thing I love about sobriety is the kind of like the smug superiority of it." Mm-hmm. Like. That feels great. Yes. Yeah. I have to say, I mean, I have had that experience too in sobriety where like, I mean, it does feel great and it's hard not to, you know, it's the, that's the same impulse animating like all kind of a lot of self-help stuff, a lot of, you know, evangelizing about, you know, when you do sort of see the light, it's really hard not to want to spread the word and maybe kind of like gently force people to do what you've done. (laughs) I think that's a very human impulse. I try not to do it, but yeah. Yeah. And here's me who wrote a book called Sober Curious with the most ridiculously kind of like (laughs) overblown promise of a subhead anyway. um, (laughs) But it's true. (laughs) But it is true. Yeah. At the same time, I think the, my takeaway from this is like, people are on their own journey. We can love and show empathy and compassion and just let people know I'm here for you, you know? Yes. But ultimately it has the impulse to quit anything or to change anything has to come from within them for whatever reason that is. I know. And I don't know why that is, but I do know from 25 years of like banging my head against a wall, trying to convince people to do, you know, I mean, I just know that that doesn't, I have enough empirical evidence to know that that does not work. And Um, and I just think that, you know, I think when we care for ourselves first, even that impulse to, you know, 
to manage other people, some of that stuff just like begins to fall away. It just things feel a little bit less desperate and a little bit less urgent when we are tending to our own side of the street, as we say. Yeah, it's very true. And actually, maybe that's as simple as, you know, I'm not no longer projecting my own woundedness onto somebody else. Exactly. Actually, I'm no longer going to try and fix them because what I really need to do is like look at my own shit. Basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I do want to talk about the family dynamic. There was something, and, and again, we've already spoken about how um, codependency is very gendered. And you talk about how this is often springs from girls, from dysfunctional families being parentified mm-hmm. and kind of roped in, particularly where there is an errant or absent father or in other way kind of incapable father figure Mm -hmm. the girl becomes well you're going to be the extra parent here and you're going to be yeah parentified which I hadn't heard that word and I love it because this definitely reflects my experience Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I'm sure many people will be familiar with this given the extent to which fathers have not been present in the family dynamic in a real true kind of like empowered masculine presence for whatever reason and later you talk about your anger about this and I am going to quote this You say, I was especially mad about the thing I couldn't yet put into words, that I'd been compulsorily enlisted into parental ranks and was expected to carry out my duties with the equanimity, responsibility, and care of an adult. And again, it's something that I personally relate to, so it was really like, ugh. (laughs) <laughs> and uh-huh. at the same time like uh, uh-huh. <laughs> and it's de- and it's something I recognize without blaming my parents at all because I completely understand like how and why in a way that was very necessary in my family and now that I'm older and able to really take care of myself and take responsibility for myself first I find myself being grateful even that I can provide that role to members of my family But I bring this up because you talk then, you use this to talk about something called, and you only mention it briefly, emotional incest. And that was a word that just really kind of sprang out from the page. And I was like, wow, could you unpack that a little bit and talk about what emotional incest is? Yes. And I have to say that I, I brought that up. I actually was sort of reluctant to include that in the book, but it's something that a therapist said to me when I was younger, that that was like what had transpired in my family. And I had such a visceral negative response to hearing that, both because it felt true and because it was just vile. I just sort of like couldn't let it in. And I said, I don't want to use that phrase. Please don't say that again. And, um, and like you, I have, you know, I have come to sort of be grateful for having learned how to manage difficult situations, care for people. And I also have tremendous understanding of like sort of how that went down in my family and why it did. And, um, you know, my mom who is extraordinary and who's like the closest person to me, you know, I really do understand that she felt very emotionally alone. And I was the sort of, you know, precocious middle child who was like, can I help? You know, I mean, it was definitely like a dynamic from which I drew a great sense of purpose. And that was probably the first time that I really, you know, I felt sort of um, needed by my sister who was struggling, but I also especially felt needed by my mother because my father, you know, who's great, was very, just sort of emotionally not up to the challenge of dealing with that, of being present as a parent through that. Um, and 
so I think that is what happens in families where an adult needs a child in an adult role. And, um, and it's something that I'm very aware of as a parent, because I, it's, I think, very easy to slip into when you have children who you, you know, you raise your children to be empathic and to be, and they are sort of naturally so present and so wonderful. And I, I now know what it feels like to have to sort of actively stop myself from saying something to them that is too, too much in the realm of adult relationships, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that term is kind of fraught for me because it is so powerful and sort of scary, you know, but I think it's very, it really cuts right to the heart of what that is. And I do think it's, I think sometimes that those dynamics are born of necessity, but I do think it's something to be really mindful of for people raising children. Cause I think it is ultimately, it can be really damaging to be called upon to do grown up stuff when we're not ready, you know? Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, sorry for bringing up such a triggering word. Oh my God. No, it did it's the just, same to me. It was yeah, kind of like, exactly. that's, that's so potent and powerful and disgusting and yeah. you want to just run from it I know and that's yeah. why I did end up including it in the book and mm-hmm. I think I tell that story in the book that a, that a therapist said it and I was kind of like please don't take it there um but that being parentified is I think a very common experience for for girls and women and that is sort of how we end up reproducing this idea that we are the carers you know mm-hmm. absolutely and I think particularly you know I grew up in a single parent household and my mum needed me yeah I don't think child rearing as a sole entity is extremely difficult because it's 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 not really supposed to be that way whether you're co-parenting with a partner or the wider family group you know that whole idea it takes a village we just don't live like that anymore and so I think so many people find themselves in this family situation where there just aren't enough adults around exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah even if it's even if it's you know a, a traditional super traditional heteronormative family situation even in this pandemic you know there are all these reports coming out about like most men think they do 50 percent of the child of the homeschooling oh, I percent of women agree it's just like <laughs> yeah we're still I saw here. that one yeah we are still here and I kind of think you know a, a big part of me thinks it's it's on men to, you know, I mean, I think that women, many women I know do the ceaseless personal work of trying to heal ourselves and have better boundaries. And, but there is like the, the other half of the equation, at least in heterosexual dynamics is dudes, you know, they have to like yes. figure out how to show up a little bit better. Yes. Yes. <laughs> in, in all the ways. Um, it's interesting. I actually think that this uber responsible kind of persona that I developed was one of the reasons I drank Mm -hmm. it gave me a chance to like fuck it off for a few hours and like not be the responsible one the irony being I was still the responsible one (laughs) most of the time when I was drunk like I was the one who never blacked out I was the one who never lost my phone like I was the one who always made sure everyone got in a cab like I I was the one at the party where people would be like are you even drunk (laughs) I relate to that so much yeah I definitely did the same I definitely drank to just sort of blank out to just remove myself from those from that sense of constant responsibility and you're absolutely right it was like 
I never could fully, I was still that person. And I, I write about that too. I mean, I would, you know, in the worst of my relationship with Kay, I would do drugs with him and then he would be able to sort of like sleep it off for a day while I was like, you know, commuting to an office job and like having to food shop for dinner later that night. You know, it was just like, it, yeah. it was crazy. And make sure you had his 40 bucks so he could get exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So you do, um, you do, address your own your own drinking Mm -hmm. at the end you talk about getting sober yourself and it's just a small section at the end it sort of feels like that's the next book (laughs) in a way (laughs) I don't know what your next book is going to be it's kind of like there's another door opening here as we get Mm -hmm. to the end of this story because the story's not really about you getting sober but I love your descriptions of your sober life and what it what that what it brings for you to you um and I wonder you know you are you you drink fairly heavily throughout mm-hmm. the book and there's one very memorable um scene where you talk about doing methadone with Kay mm-hmm. and the next morning you were just in the grips of like the most horrendous hangover and it's the day of your son's birthday party mm-hmm. you cook this gorgeous cake and you're you've organized this thing in the park and you're having to go and like throw up behind mm-hmm. the car and I just wonder if you have regrets about kind of having us in your home and Mm -hmm. exposing your kids to this and how you um, have come to terms and come to peace with, with this sort of being part of their formative years, I suppose. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, Yes, of course I have. I, I had a lot of guilt about it and that guilt was, um, I don't think I was able to really look it in the face for a while. So in fact, the guilt, I think there is a kind of, um, there's a version of sort of lightweight guilt and shame that enables us to continue with our bad behaviors. Like I think for a long time I felt like so shitty that I had to just sort of drink it away, you know, rather than so shitty that I was ready to completely change my entire life and look at all of it. Um, So now I definitely like differentiate between two different registers of guilt. Now I have, um, I do have an enduring sense of guilt and also kind of wonder in the way that many addicts and alcoholics I know have, like that that could ever have been me and that I made some of the choices I made. Um, I was so uh, obsessed with not having Kay's really hardcore drug abuse around the kids. And so I ended up also in very codependent fashion, really sort of like bisecting my life into this like just abject (laughs) nightmare of being with somebody who was shooting heroin and crack and, and then being like mommy the other half of the week. And, um, And for long stretches, I was sort of able to do that dance of like keeping him away from the kids and out of the house. And, but it meant that I was like on 200% when I had to be a mom and I was always sort of, you know, hungover and distracted more than anything, distracted and preoccupied and depressed. And so I, I think I'm still working through, um, I'm still working through some of the shame and regret I feel around that. And I was incredibly, I mean, to be really frank, I was so nervous to write about that as a mom. I think there are, I remember talking to one of my friends 
And she was saying, you know, well, our narratives of motherhood are getting more and more complicated every day. And I was like, no, they are complicated to a point. Like it's now okay to say it's a mess. It's so hard to be married to my great guy. It's so hard to like get everything done. You know, it's okay to express that. It's not really yet okay to be a mom who was an alcoholic or a sex worker. Or I mean, there are certain things that just sadly remain so stigmatized. And um, I think we have a lot more work to do there when we're, you know, really reckoning with sort of maternal ambivalence and shame and all the things that we feel. But I think um, I feel such a lightness in sobriety that I just didn't, I, I did not know was available to me. I thought I thought I was sort of like destined for sadness forever and so there's even a lightness to the shame and to the because it it is um I think it's something I'm working through but it it no longer feels active I feel 100% confident that that today I'm like an excellent mother and excellent person and and I feel um I think like working through our shame is just a really long-term project I think that I will feel that with that feeling comes up sometimes for me certainly especially as you know I see friends kind of embarking on um marriage and and motherhood and it just it looks so neat you know their their lives are so ordered and they are just in such stable relationships and I'm just like how on earth like how do people just know how to do that you know but it looks different for all of us. You never know what's going on behind the scenes until someone writes a really honest book. <laughs> so <laughs> I would first of all like to say, I think you've done a huge service to dismantling some of that stigma around like bad moms. Thank I'm actually you. reading a really interesting book now. Um, it's on regretting motherhood. And like, that is almost like the biggest taboo. That, that is certainly the biggest. done by this woman in Israel, actually, um, who... Yeah, she she did a study speaking to like 25 women who were willing to speak on this subject. And she goes really deeply into all of the different layers of like, yeah, conditioning we have around this idealized vision of motherhood and how that's actually probably untrue for the vast majority of women who are yes. mothers for yes. multiple different reasons. It's exactly. so fascinating. That and again, I'm fascinating. just so grateful because I'm like, yes, and this is what I love about storytelling, like really real, honest storytelling. It's the only way to to break down these barriers and, I totally agree. and to like give people just permission to be happy as they are, you know? Yeah. And I think, I mean, when you're writing something this personal, there were so many, you know, there were many iterations and drafts where, I mean, that story about having a methadone hangover at my son's birthday party was not in the first draft of this book. Like that was, that was when I realized that the first draft, you know, there's, there, I just knew that I had to go deeper and show more shit. And that was really painful and also um, cathartic in a way. I think it's, I think it, I think we do need to share those stories to me. Those, I mean, those have been the most powerful influences in my life. Women who were willing to tell the truth about their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes me think about something else you said about feeling guilty. I sometimes think, if we know something's we've we haven't been in integrity or we haven't really showed up or something's been off, 
we can mistake feeling guilty about that as kind of like a penance. Mm-hmm. And so therefore we can continue with that behavior because I'm paying my penance by feeling guilty exactly. about it. Exactly. Exactly. Rather than actually doing something about it. Exactly. Which is the hard thing. Yeah. And I do think that that's what sort of became available to me once I really started taking recovery seriously and sobriety. I mean, I think I would love to write more about the relationship between codependency recovery and sobriety because I think for so many people I know a lot of people who got sober first and then it took them years in sobriety to be like wow I wonder why all my relationships still aren't working or why I still you know am depressed and out of alignment with my own values or whatever and they sort of come to Al-Anon with long-term sobriety and are like oh this is the missing piece you know these two things for a lot of people I think do go together and for me I was in Al-Anon first but sobriety has just unlocked an entire new level of the video game of life you know I just feel like there are so many things including writing that it uh you know I just feel more sort of like alive to the possibility of making a good life for myself and my kids and that sobriety has been essential there I just don't think that any of this could have happened without it Awesome. There's one thing I just want to finish up on because it comes up again a lot. Um, And, you know, you mentioned looking at these people who are kind of living these perfect Instagrammable sort of family lives and baking the real cupcakes, (laughs) never, never having a hangover, even though they're drinking a bottle of wine every night. And this wine wine mum culture is so prevalent and feels to me, I'm not a mother myself, and it just feels to me very, very toxic. And I wonder if perhaps even the the fact that this kind of culture around like mummy having her mummy juice or whatever it is is concealing so much of what you write and speak about in the book but that is too shameful to be acknowledged or or addressed yes I definitely think that um yeah there have been some interesting things written about from that perspective of sort of seeing the the mommy juice phenomenon as a way of placating women whose lives are affected by the actual structural inequality. And, and I think I wish, I mean, I, it's sort of my hope for this book to, um, to help women think about how they feel in their own personal relationships and to see a sort of through line of it's just inequality. It's like just, it's patriarchal oppression and so many of our decisions and behaviors are conditioned by those forces and the more attuned we can become to how all of that works I think the better able we are to sort of decide whether we want to you know participate in our own I think sedation really I mean I think that that's kind of what the that to me not to make it all sound so sinister, sometimes people just want to have a glass of rosé after a long day or something. I don't think it's all like the opiate of the masses, but but I do feel, um, for me, it absolutely became just a way to sort of shut out all of the things that felt unjust and unfair and maddening and crazy making in my life in the world outside and down to my relationship with the man in my home. Mm. And yeah, I... I I think it would be really great if we could just continue to sort of have like an ever more fine-grained awareness of how those forces act on our lives and be able to make just 
make better decisions or more informed decisions rather. Yeah, exactly. More decisions that are really about who we are and what we actually need. Coming back yes. to that thing about recognizing what we actually need versus what society is telling us. We yes. Need. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I definitely think it's not um, the idea that drinking a lot of wine is somehow relaxing in the life of a mother of young children is just a fiction. I mean, I think it might occasionally have that effect, but I think for those of us who overindulge, it's a nightmare, you know, and so many people don't have that problem. But for those of us who do, it's doesn't like put you in better touch with who you are and what you want. Absolutely not. Nina, thank you again for coming on to talk about all of this. Thank you again for writing your book. I'm going to tell thank you who's listening again by Nina's book. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. I love your work and I love this podcast. It's such a resource. Thank you again for being here for getting sober curious and for being part of this conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes to help more people find the series. This podcast is edited and features original music by Allo Audio. Find them at aloeaudio.com.